0: Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. A little later in the show, we are going to celebrate Festivus, the bizarre holiday festival invented by Frank Costanza, father of George Costanza, on the iconic 90s sitcom Seinfeld, And we are going to celebrate in the absolute most appropriate way. We are going to have the airing of grievances. If you remember Festivus, there were many different rituals associated with it. One was the Festivus pole, the big metal pole that Frank Costanza had. I've got a Festivus pole today in the studio next to me. You can go to Twitter and probably by now check that out. We had some photos taken of that. Uh, There was also... The Feats of Strength, which we can't really do on the radio. I'm not sure how that would work. But there was the airing of grievances as well. And if you remember correctly what Frank Costanza said, he got a lot of problems with you people. So maybe I do too. I don't know. We'll see when we get to that segment how many problems I have. And, of course, I want to hear your problems. 313-577-1019. What really... Picked you off about 2016. Let's We can talk a lot about the year. Uh, we can also talk about Detroit and the state and the nation. So about half past the hour, we will get to our festive celebration here on Detroit Today. But first, I still have some serious business to conduct here uh, on Detroit Today. Uh, we, I want to continue our conversation about the Electoral College, which we've been talking about uh, since, the, since the election, uh, the second time in 16 years that the popular vote doesn't match the electoral outcome. And this week, of course, the Electoral College officially elected businessman Donald Trump as the next president of the United States. And of course, the popular vote was also certified, giving Hillary Clinton nearly three million more votes than Trump got in the presidential election. Uh, this happening is as within a sixteen, twice within a sixteen-year period, is unusual, unprecedented, really in the in the history of the United States. Why was the Electoral College established by the founders? And can the system survive if a discrepancy in popular vote and electoral college outcome emerges more frequently? Joining me to talk about the history of the electoral college and what it should mean to our discussions now is Richard Primus. He is a professor and constitutional law expert at the University of Michigan Law School. Richard, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Hey, how are you?
1: Good. Happy to be here.
0: Yes. Uh, So let's start with the history of of the Electoral College first. Um, uh, I I wrote a column uh, last month in the Detroit Free Press about some of the history of the Electoral College, noting that uh, one of the interests that was driving it, one of the interests that was being sort of preserved, was the power of Southern states, which were slaveholding states at that time. That was one of the concerns uh, that was aired during uh, the Constitutional Convention about what, you know, the 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 power of the popular vote to sort of enforce, uh, I guess, uh, majoritarian tyranny on uh, minority interests. But I know that that's not, of course, the only interest. Talk about how uh, these different interests so, uh, all sort of came together to give us this uh, indirect way of selecting a president. Sure. And of
1: course, you're right that the Southern state's interest in protecting slavery was part of what was at work. Um, And you're also right, there are a lot of other things going on. The the reasons that they chose the Electoral College would not be reasons that would make sense today. Uh, The Electoral College today serves essentially no good purpose. We would never choose it on a blank slate. But in 1787 the writers of the Constitution faced a very different set of circumstances. So consider this. We think of the default way of electing someone in a democracy as being by a vote of the electorate. It seems intuitive. It seems obvious. And even then, it seemed obvious enough that when the Constitutional Convention first started talking about how to choose the president— The idea was floated that there should be a national election of the citizens. But that idea was quickly and overwhelmingly rejected. And a major reason why it was quickly and overwhelmingly rejected is something that might not occur to us. They had no agreement on a nationwide basis about who could vote. Right. Today, we have a general agreement about who voters are, right? Adults over 18, citizens, you know, can't discriminate on the basis of race and sex and so forth. In the 1780s, there was no agreement state to state about who could vote. And not only was there no agreement, but it was a very contentious issue. The Constitution ducked this issue with respect to elections for Congress, right? Each state under the Constitution set its own rules for who could vote in that state's elections for the House of Representatives. But you see why you can't use that system for a national vote for president, right? right? If there's going to be a national vote for president, either there has to be one rule for the whole country about who can vote, and they knew they could never agree on that, or states could choose their own rules. But if states can choose their own rules for who votes, states have incentives to let more and more people vote in that election so that they get more and more power in the presidential election. That's not viable either. So they quickly threw out the idea of a nationwide election that would directly elect the president, and they thought about other alternatives. And one other obvious alternative was to let Congress elect the president in the way that in a parliamentary system, the parliament chooses the prime minister. And that... Seemed a little troubling to them because they wanted the president to be a check on Congress. They wanted a system of checks and balances. And once they decided that the president was going to be reelectable, it seemed clear that they didn't want Congress making the choice about whether to reelect the president, because then the president wouldn't exercise independent judgment to push back against Congress. He would see Congress as the people who were going to renew his contract, or not, right? and pander to them more. So that didn't seem like a good idea.
0: Right.
1: There was some thought of letting the state legislatures do it. Um, but that suffers from some of the same problems. What they needed, they thought, was a one-time electorate, uh, rather than a standing body that the president would cater to. And that generated the idea of what we know as the Electoral College, a group that would be selected within the states, with each state making its own rules about how to select its people. Now, it would be a mistake to think that they came up with this in a sort of systematic, theoretical way from first principles. If you read the debates of the convention on how to select the president, you find, like, they try one thing, they don't like that. They think of another thing, they don't like that. They keep on tinkering, they keep on revising because there was really no good solution to the problem. You kind of get the idea that if the convention had gone on another six weeks, they would have proposed and accepted and revised 11 different things and you might have been (laughs) left with something else, Right. right? This is just where we wound up because nothing was a good solution. And when they landed upon this solution they needed to come up with a formula for how to assign electors, how to allocate electors among the states. And the formula they came up with, right, the one we all know, Mm -hmm. the number of senators plus the number of representatives in that state, it overweights the power of small states, right, obviously, um, for the same reason that the Senate does. And there's no justification for that, really. It's just a power play like the Senate itself was at the Constitutional Convention. And many of the leading founders hated that power play in the Senate. Madison himself, for example, father of the Constitution, uh, at first uh, thought that there was no point in continuing the Constitutional Convention at all once the big states caved to the threats of the small states to walk out and agreed to the Senate because it was so obviously unprincipled and unjust. But having swallowed that in the Senate, the big states didn't mind swallowing the same thing so much in the Electoral College, in part because most of the founders thought that elections would usually fail to be decided in the Electoral College, that no one would get a majority. And that meant that most of the time, elections would go to the House of Representatives, right? That's the system in the Constitution. If no one gets a majority of the electors, the election is then decided in the House of Representatives. And they thought also, right, they imagined that the electors would be people who would exercise independent judgment, they'd be better informed than the electorate at large, maybe it would be a reasonable way when they did agree on, when a majority of them did agree on how to select the president. The system never worked as expected. In the first two elections, George Washington won unanimously. Right. Um, Everyone sort of predicted that. The question was how the system was going to perform once Washington was gone. And as soon as he was gone, all kinds of things happened in the electoral college that had not been predicted, um, mostly because of the rise of a phenomenon that the founders didn't count on, which was organized political parties. By 1800, in the famous Jefferson Adams, Elect, the second of the two Jefferson-Adams elections. Yes. Jefferson's people, the Democratic-Republicans, figured out that if they got all of the Democratic-Republican electors in all the states to vote the same way, they could get their guy in, right? And what this relied on was undermining the part of the electoral college that was supposed to have the electors exercise independent judgment. Yes. They said, we're not going to do that. We're going to work as one unified team Right? We're going to have one guy who we're all going to support. Now, of course, famously, they goofed, right? because <laughs> the way the Electoral College worked in those days was each elector cast two votes, two different people. Right.
0: President and, and vice president.
1: President, right. Well, but not both separately. Both for president, right. Right, both for president. And whoever ran second became vice president. When Jefferson's people decided in 1800 to have everyone vote the same way, they knew that they wanted Aaron Burr to be Jefferson's vice president. So they said, everyone vote for Jefferson and everyone vote for Burr. And they forgot to tell one person not to vote for Burr, right, which would have let Burr run second. And so the result was that Jefferson and Burr tied in the electoral college, uh, which was not what they intended at all. (laughs) But, um, But that meant the election had to be settled in the House of Representatives where eventually it was worked out and Jefferson became president. By about 1830, the de facto system that the Electoral College was done by political party on a winner-take-all system in each state had sort of congealed. It was no longer a body where people exercised independent judgment. It was no longer a body where different electors from the same state might vote different ways. We had something like what we recognize today, with one important exception, which is they still did not really have fully in place the thing that we think of as the popular vote. Until after the Civil War, there were still a bunch of states that did not assign the selection of the electors to a broad electorate. Right. Uh, by, the, by late in the 19th century... We had something that really looked like what we have now. Let's say there's a broad citizen electorate. Basically, the same people who vote for the House of Representatives get to vote for presidential electors. And winner take all in each state chose the electors. Once we got to that point, it's really hard to see why you shouldn't have just a straight popular election for the president. You're giving it to the broad electorate You've got a strange Rube Goldberg system that allocates different weights to different states based on n- no criteria that actually makes sense in the selection of a president. And you create a situation where it's possible that the majority of the voters want one person and someone else becomes president almost arbitrarily. But we never changed the system. And we never changed the system really for this combination of reasons. The first was people were used to it, right? Right. You, you it's don't, hard
0: to, it's hard to uh, advocate for change at, at that level.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, th- there's momentum, there's inertia, and especially so because it didn't seem to make much difference. A- except for one election in 1888, for more than a hundred years, the winner of the popular vote always won in the Electoral College also. And it seemed like the Electoral College was functionally a rubber stamp of the popular vote. And if it wasn't going to make much difference, then there wasn't really a motivation to reform the system to something more rational. In fact, a lot of people probably liked the Electoral College even when it didn't make much difference, because it was sort of a weird artifact of of the founding and the Constitutional Convention. Americans love talking about the Constitutional Convention. And if you rationalize a part of the Constitution for modern conditions, you give up an opportunity to tell stories about the Constitutional Convention in conversations like this, right? You lose the occasion to say, well, why did we do this crazy thing? And that provokes (laughs) you to tell a story that everyone likes about the Constitutional Convention. So as long as it didn't make a difference, and it gave us this sort of narrative link to these wonderful stories about the Constitutional Convention, and people were used to it, it hung around. It stayed there. We're not in that situation anymore. We are now in conditions where it's quite clear that having the electoral college system rather than a national popular democratic vote does make a difference twice in 16 years. Yes. Right? This time, someone won the popular vote by 3 million votes and someone else is going to be president. And, you know, there's really no good reason that winning votes in some states rather than others ought to overcome how many votes you win nationwide. The president is a national official. The president represents all the people of the United States. Right. If we were choosing on a blank slate today as a democratic system, we would have a national popular vote. There's really no justification for choosing to have something else. It's just that it's what we have. And now we face a different problem. When something doesn't seem to make any difference, it's sometimes hard to motivate people to make a change because they say, why should we bother? Right. When something does make a difference, if it's clear who the difference favors, it's hard to make a change because people don't like to give up advantage. Right. right? No one wants and to give up power. No one wants to give up power. Twice in 16 years, the Electoral College has chosen a president different from the president the popular vote would have chosen. But twice that's worked to the advantage of the same political party, of the Republican Party. And there are demographic reasons why Republicans might predict that it will continue to work in their advantage, right? Why it might be the case that a Republican could win the presidency, not just this time on a freak basis, but maybe next time, too, even losing the popular vote by a couple of points. It's hard under those circumstances to convince the people who have that advantage to reform the rules of the game to something that would be more rationally democratic. And it's very hard to amend. You can't amend the Constitution without big supermajority agreement. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Richard Primus. He's a professor and constitutional law expert at the University of Michigan Law School. We are talking about the Electoral College, continuing our conversation about the Electoral College in the wake of the November 8th elections, in which, uh, for the second time in 16 years, we have a difference between the popular outcome in the presidential election and uh, the Electoral College outcome. Uh, Richard, I want to go back to the beginning again, uh, and, and into history. It seems that no matter how you explain uh, the, the, the dynamics that were at work, and, and we have sort of agreed that there were many different dynamics going on many different interests uh, that were pushing for something other than uh, the popular vote to to, to be uh, to be the way that we chose a president all of those all of those interests though seem to reflect some baked in inequality they seem to reflect some uh, shortcoming, in fact, in the ideals that uh, that are set out in the Declaration and that the Founders were ostensibly trying to inculcate into the Founding with the Constitution. Whether it's slavery, whether it's uh, this idea of uh, a balance of power between uh, urban centers and rural uh, rural interests. I mean, there, there there isn't anything at work here that is really about. Um, Uh, fairness or justice or equality. I mean, this is a function of the nation's inherent inequalities. Is Is that a fair assessment?
1: That's largely true. I would say maybe it reflects a set of uneasy compromises between aspirations toward equality and realities of brute power and things that we would recognize today as unjust prejudices. There's a there's a remark, it may be apocryphal, it's attributed to Benjamin Franklin, that constitutions come into the world half-improvise and half-compromise. Um, con- actually, that revolutions come into the world uh-huh. half-improvise and half-compromise. And the Constitution was a revolution of its own in government. The compromises in the Constitution are all through the document. There are lots of deals cut in the Constitution to keep people at the table that have no principled basis, that had no principled basis at the time. The Senate is the most obvious one. And the Electoral College reflects that
0: also. Uh, uh, So now, today, now that we know that those inequalities are uh injustices, and now that there is sort of a more common understanding that those compromises were masking those inequalities and those injustices, doesn't that give us a, a, a greater impetus for rethinking that whole thing? Or shouldn't it? I would hope so. I would hope so. I would hope that we
1: would not go indefinitely into the future with a system th- whose only real justification is a set of uh, compromises to power and sometimes to prejudice that we would not make ourselves just because we're used to it and just because the people whom it benefits doesn't want to give it up. I would hope that we would exercise our own democratic agency and reform the system and make it better. There's There's a way in which many people think we shouldn't tinker with the Constitution on these things. It shows a lack of respect for and a lack of faith in the founders to tinker with their work. And the ironic thing about that, the thing that that misses, I think, is what did the founders do? The founders changed the system of government they had substantially because they recognized that the one they had before wasn't working. To follow their example, it seems to me, really to honor the spirit of their project means not just accepting a system inherited from the past when it isn't working anymore, but really digging in and noticing the problem and asking the hard question and pushing through something that makes more sense that's a more functional democracy for the values of democracy as we understand it.
0: Yeah, I mean, one way to look at this is to to think about how difficult these issues have been. I mean, you think about slavery, how confounding an issue that was for the founders, uh, and then how uh, confounding it was for the nation for the first hundred or so years, uh, nearly hundred years after after the Constitution is is ratified. I mean, this these. These inequalities royal the the, the the republic for for eternity. I mean, and, and it starts at this constitutional convention where there are no clear answers to, to, to dealing with them in the term in terms of uh, selecting a president or uh, dividing up population or deciding who who can vote or who can't. I mean, all of these things sort of uh, they they make. They make the the American experiment more difficult.
1: They do. And I think, you know, we should give the founders due credit, right? Um, They did pretty good work for a summer. They had a lot of very big problems to solve. They had deep divisions within the American polity on fundamental issues, slavery most obviously. Um, And they put together a system— that held the government together for 70 years. Now, it came apart after 70 years, right? <laughs> right? We had a civil war. Civil war reflects a serious limitation in the success of a constitution. And and they did not certainly solve the slavery problem in a way that would comport with our moral standards. But holding a government together for 70 years is no mean feat. Most national constitutions don't last anything like that long. They did, like, really impressive work in that respect. But there were a lot of seams in the work, right? Some of them, some of the big things that we would object to have been wiped out and reformed. Slavery, again, the most obvious, right? It took a civil war to do it. Mm -hmm. Some of them still remain. The composition of the U.S. Senate and the system of the Electoral College are two really important, obvious ones. Um, I I, I hope we never fight a civil war over those things. Uh, Civil wars are, you know, horrible and bloody and destructive. Um, I also hope that we find ways to reform them before they push our democratic values farther and farther away from the actual practice of our
0: government. I mean, in some ways, uh, all of these things tell all of us, to wait, to wait for equality to arrive. I think that's right. I think that um,
1: when we come to the Electoral College and the Senate, though, there's a difference between how we think about the equality problems there and how we think about some other equality problems Mm -hmm. in American history. Um, Very few people today go to bat the idea that it would be okay for the Constitution to let the government treat people unequally on the basis of race or sex, let's say. But there are still a lot of people who will make arguments that say, no, actually it does make sense for small states to have more power per person in the Senate or in the Electoral College than large states do. Um, it's complicated to think about why. Partly, it's that we're used to it. Partly, people have a sense that um, they, that people can choose where to live, which is true to some extent. Partly, it's a sense that it's a different kind of evil, and it is a different kind of evil. Um, And partly, I think it's part of the normal civics education of well-socialized Americans, right? We all learn in the fourth grade and probably several other times in life, about the great compromise at the Constitution that created the Senate, apportioned two senators to each state, and the House of Representatives on the basis of population, and that then sets the groundwork for how the Electoral College works also. And we learn about it as if it was this wonderful, brilliant idea. Um, and so we're trained We're conditioned. Not to question. Right. Not (laughs) – and and to defend it, right, to think of it as a glorious innovation that makes lots of sense. I always think – I sort of understand why people from Vermont, you know, to take an example, or Mm -hmm. Hawaii or Wyoming are easy sells on this issue, right? Like they get a lot of extra power on this basis. What mystifies me is why people from Texas, right (laughs) – are just as likely to tell the story of that compromise with smiles on their faces because they get a very short end of it, right? They're a very large state. There's really no justification for Texas having only as much weight in the Senate as Vermont does. No justification for it at all under democratic principles. But we've learned to tell the story as if it were A wonderful one, as if it were wise, as if it made sense. And that's hard to overcome. And it's especially hard to overcome when in the background, there are real dynamics where like some people get a lot of extra power from it. So I think it requires a really important awakening on the part of American citizens, both for the Senate and for the Electoral College, to think about the fact that the system we have doesn't properly serve a rational set of democratic values. Yeah. Uh, I think that would require a big national conversation and a lot of honesty and self-awareness. I think we would have a much better government, a much better constitutional system if we could have those conversations and come to the other side of it with a system where people who got more votes got into office. Yeah. That seems like a good way to run a democracy. It's the way we do
0: everything else. In the it's the Republic. way we do everything else. <laughs> okay. Richard Primus, professor and constitutional law expert at the University of Michigan Law School. As always, thank you for being with us on Detroit Today. Happy to be here. Absolutely. All right. Up next, I've got my Festivus poll next to me. It is time for a Festivus for the rest of us. What has you shaking your fist at 2016? Call us now for the annual airing of grievances. Stay with us on Detroit Today.